Welcome to Inside Medical Malpractice. My name is Chris Rokosh. I'm a registered nurse, legal consultant and educator, and the president of Connect Medical Legal Experts. Each month, we'll be looking at malpractice issues from different perspectives, featuring honest, candid, insightful interviews by people and professionals with a wealth of information to share. Thanks for spending time with me today. Now let's dive into this fascinating subject. Welcome to another great episode of Inside Medical Malpractice. I'm so glad that you're here today because this is the start of a five-part series on some of the top problematic issues in healthcare that result in malpractice. The five issues we're going to talk about over the next few weeks include inadequate assessment, medication errors, failure to communicate, inadequate infection control, and unsafe or improper use of equipment. These problems were identified and studied and reported as early as 1980 in some research by Compazi. So this isn't new information to anyone, but at least one of these issues, and sometimes several of them, play a significant part still in malpractice cases today. When I first started reviewing malpractice cases as a nurse, as a nurse and I've reviewed hundreds of them by now, I realized really just how little I knew and understood about my legal responsibility. And I really wonder why all healthcare providers aren't taught much more about the legal risk of their job before they're ever allowed to touch a patient. I also wondered if we all knew more about the issues, about their outcomes and really understood not how badly they can affect patients, but how they can ruin careers that we might all do better but mostly I wonder if we all had more understanding, could it make a difference to the bottom line of patient safety? So let's learn. In the next five podcasts, we're gonna break down the five issues one by one. Each episode will feature a comprehensive discussion, a medical legal case study presentation, and an interview with a lawyer discussing how they would approach the case. My guest today is Richard Halpern, and the topic is assessment. Richard's a repeat guest. He recorded the very, very first podcast with me back in 2019, and his episode titled Richard Halpern Discusses Medical Malpractice Law is still one of the top five downloads of all time. Every guest that's been on the show since him has been trying to beat it. So welcome back, Richard. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm so pleased. I'm glad you're here. You're a good storyteller. This is going to be a great, great episode. So thank you so much for being on. My pleasure. Before we start into this story, let me tell you or remind you a little bit about this guy. Richard Halpern is a senior lawyer acting exclusively for injured people in medical negligence cases. He has a special focus on birth injury, and he's a founding member of the Birth Injury Lawyers Alliance. They meet regularly to share strategies, review literature, and develop best practices. He's very well known for tackling some of the most complex and challenging cases. He's lectured and written extensively on medical malpractice and legal and trial strategy and delivered more than 90 presentations to both legal and healthcare providers. He's achieved significant settlements for his clients and appeared in superior and appeal courts. In addition to a Bachelor of Arts and Law degree, he has a master's degree in civil litigation. He's a member of the Advocate Society, the Ontario Trialers Association, the Ontario Bar Association, the Litigation Council of America, and the American Association of Justice. I could go on and on and tell you so much more, but he's easy to find at Gluckstein Lawyers, 
And his bio is on the website and it's quite comprehensive. So have a look if you want to know more. As I said a minute ago, today's podcast will focus on the issue of assessment. More specifically, a problematic lack of assessment which resulted in maternal death after a childbirth. This topic is incredibly timely, as there was a CBC report earlier this month suggesting that the number of maternal death rates are likely underestimated in many countries. This is due to some underreporting, some inconsistent definition of even what constitutes a maternal death, and unreliable systems of collecting and sharing information. The lack of information removes any possibility of identifying the factors that contribute to maternal death and certainly from learning from them. And then of course, from instituting measures to prevent the worst case scenario from happening. This is tragic on many levels, but mostly or partly because research has shown that many deaths and adverse event outcomes are preventable. On the topic of assessment, I think it's common sense and that we all understand on a general basis that failing to perform an adequate assessment of anything, whether it's checking a leaky pipe, a suspicious person at the airport, looking under the hood of your car to see what's making a noise, results in a lack of information, which can lead to a lack of intervention and sometimes disastrous outcomes. And in healthcare, the disastrous part is what's particularly true and frightening. All healthcare providers are tasked with the responsibility of providing safe, ethical, competent care and ensuring that their practice meets both professional standards and legal requirements. Timely and appropriate patient assessments are considered a fundamental skill, something that's critical to patient safety. For nurses, this requires that assessments are completed according to doctor's orders, to current standards of care, to best practice guidelines, to facility policies, but most importantly, according to each patient's individual condition. The courts view all of us healthcare providers as having a specialized body of knowledge. We're expected to use critical thinking by responding appropriately to information obtained through assessments. And in some situations, it's tricky. Nurses and doctors are required to assess patients without any input from them, without any subjective information, such as during periods of sleep, recovery from anesthesia, in pediatric care, or when caring for unconscious or mentally compromised patients. That said, in all situations, the expectation for care is that assessments will be completed and that as and if the patient's condition changes, so does the detail and the frequency of the assessments and all the necessary interventions. This might seem really straightforward, but we're here to tell you today that it just doesn't always happen. Many malpractice lawsuits include allegations that the nurse or doctor did not assess the patient often enough, thoroughly enough, or that they didn't assess them at all. So let's start with a case study that includes significant problems with assessment, and then we'll have some questions. I'm going to just hand it over to you here, Richard, to tell us your story. Thanks, Chris. Well, that introduction really has a ton of relevance to what I'm here to talk to you about today. And it's a case involving a postpartum death in a postpartum hemorrhage case of a young mother, I mean, a relatively older woman for having a baby. She was 45 years old at the time, having her second child. 
But what's remarkable to me in, in these cases, and, and you've touched on this in your introduction, is that these uh, outcomes, these tragic outcomes, are really avoidable sometimes through rather routine things and common sense. I think this is just one of those cases. And um, postpartum hemorrhage deaths actually should not happen in first world countries, ever. One thing that nurses need to be attuned to, doctors and nurses need to be attuned to when it comes to postpartum hemorrhage is that prompt recognition of the problem and an aggressive response is necessary to pre pre prevent these deaths. Uh, everybody needs, needs to understand that. And the problem in this case and other cases that I see like it is uh, that there isn't prompt recognition of the problem. There is inadequate assessment of the patient postoperatively. So this is a woman who comes to hospital. She's 39 weeks, so this is a full-term uh, pregnancy. And she has some abdominal pain and bleeding. They diagnose fairly quickly that this woman probably has a placental abruption. And they take her for a cesarean section. There's nothing really exciting about the cesarean section, although before her surgery, she does have a hemoglobin of 100, which is not shockingly low and really not unexpected in a patient who's presenting with an abruption, but would not in and of itself be concerning necessarily, maybe even normal for some. And uh, so they do the surgery and the blood loss during the C-section is recorded to be 500 cc's, which would be a standard amount of blood loss for a C-section, not a ton of blood loss, although notoriously we know that blood loss is underestimated during these procedures. But even that really isn't a problem. She is normotensive during surgery, a blood pressure of 125 over 65, and interoperatively things seem to go fairly well. The trouble in this case and other cases is when she gets to the recovery room after her section, and the very first assessment by the nurse at 7.28 in the morning records a blood pressure of 67 over 37. That in, in and of itself is alarming. Now we know in this case that the, the post-op orders require that the nurse assess the vital signs every 15 minutes in the first hour post-operatively. But as you mentioned, needs need to be adapted to the particular clinical scenario. You can't simply follow guidelines blindly. You must bring some form of nursing skill and where you have an abnormality, it's my position that you have to increase your level of surveillance. What is shocking in this case is that the mother comes into the recovery room at 7.28 in the morning um, and the blood pressure I just gave you is recorded in a note made almost three and a half hours later. So there is no entry in the chart. There are no contemporaneous notes while this mother is in the recovery room of any information whatsoever. The note is made after she crashes, after she becomes hemodynamically unstable, after she needs all kinds of blood products. That's when the note is made, three and a half hours after the fact. And what's interesting about that is um, I don't think we, I have to tell any listener what a bad practice that is with no contemporaneous notes. But in addition to this abnormal finding, uh, there is no record of her heart rate. There is no record of her respiratory rate. There is no information about her oxygen saturation. There is no note about her pain. 
There's no note about her level of consciousness, nothing. It's merely her blood pressure at that time. The nurse does take her blood pressure two minutes later, and it looks like it's not that bad. And then she takes it one minute later, and it's not so good. And then she takes it again at 7.35, and it looks normal, where she, for the first time she records a heart rate that she says is between 90 and 100 beats per minute. Also not a good idea, because I don't think that's her heart rate. I think, the, I think she's trying to capture more time than that single observation. But the remarkable thing is there is then a 35-minute gap before, or I'm sorry, a 25-minute gap before she records the heart rate again, the vitals again. And the vitals, the only thing she records again is the is the blood pressure. So at 7.35, she thinks the blood pressure is okay, and the next recording is at 8 o'clock. Now, that doesn't comply with the guideline, the post-op guideline of how often you're supposed to monitor vitals. And she doesn't monitor any vital but the blood pressure. But the remarkable thing, truly, in this case, is that when she measures the blood pressure again at 8 o'clock at 64 over 45, the woman is severely hypotensive. What makes the case even more remarkable is in this late note, made almost four hours after the event, the nurse writes that the woman had a seizure-like uh, episode. Seizure-like episode. So we have a disturbed, some very important clinical finding, a disturbed level of consciousness. Well, don't you know that she did not call a doctor in response to the seizure-like episode? It just happens that 10 minutes later, the doctor was strolling through the recovery room and the nurse asked the doctor to come see the patient about 10 minutes later. But the nurse doesn't say she told the doctor anything about the seizure-like episode. There's no evidence that the doctor examined the patient for bleeding, none. There's no contemporaneous doctor's note. And the doctor leaves without instructions, without any change. The nurse does give a bolus of fluids to mom, and her blood pressure temporarily comes back up with the bolus of fluids. Well, to make matters worse than at only 15 minutes, only five minutes after the doctor leaves, the mother has a second seizure-like episode. Now, while all this is happening, there are no contemporaneous notes, none whatsoever. There are no notes that the nurse is particularly busy with something else. And there's no explanation why she's not measuring anything but, but blood pressure and why she's not recording these things. There's no indication of any blood work ordered. There's no coagulation studies. There's nothing about mom's color. There's nothing about her recovery. There's very little information that's going on here. And uh, actually at, at 15 minutes later, the blood pressure is 85 over 50, and the nurse describes that the mother loses consciousness. Well, the doctor's, the, the obstetrician's not called. Uh, the anesthetist is called. And the anesthetist comes and, and he gives the mother ephedrine. And uh, just 15 minutes later, there's another report of seizure-like activity. And the anesthetist decides to take the mother to the obstetrical OR, not the main OR, not anticipating surgery for a possible postpartum hemorrhage, uh, and monitors her there where her, she remains hypotensive. Uh, heart rate is 110, so now they're, they're finally recognizing a tachycardia. But still, it's another six minutes or at 8.36 in the morning when finally somebody does a point-of-care hemoglobin and discovers on HemoQ that her, her hemoglobin is 59. But for some reason, this is not noted in the chart until 11 minutes later. This is instantly available 
and not noted until 11 minutes later. Still, the obstetrician's not called. No call to the obstetrician. Now, let's pause here and talk about what ought to happen. What ought to happen, what's the very first thing on, on your differential diagnosis, even for a nurse? It's got to be postpartum hemorrhage. This is a patient who has no underlying condition other than she required a cesarean section for a placental abruption. What would you think this would be that would explain hypotension, would explain seizure-like activity, and would explain hemoglobin of 59? I mean, it's, it, you don't have to be a nurse to understand what's happening here. Are they monitoring the blood loss during this time? Like, does documentation include vaginal bleeding of any sort? The note indicates that they palpate the uterus and find it to be firm, which I don't believe, because when they ultimately went in, there was very severe uterine atony, as you would, you would expect. And they're, at this time, they are not reporting any perfect line of blood loss at this time. But that doesn't take away the fact that this mom is bleeding. Hemocu is 59. She's bleeding. So just for non-medical listeners, I'm going to give a couple of points of reference here. Like a placental abruption is when the placenta breaks away from the wall of the uterus before the baby is born. In a typical birth, the baby is delivered. The uterus contracts down, the placenta releases and is delivered. And some, But sometimes in some situation, it releases first, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, for a lot of different reasons. But it's, it's, a, it's an obstetrical emergency because it cuts the blood slope the blood flow to the baby, but also causes a potentially life-threatening loss of blood to the mother. When we're talking about hemoglobin of 11, and now you said 6.9, was that the second one? No, the, the hemoglobin was 59. The hemocue, oh, 59, okay. So normal hemoglobin is like 12 to 14. So 10-ish at first when she came into the hospital is not uncommon, third trimester pregnancy, but it's not great, but 59 is terrible. Like that's that's a loss of about I don't know technically fifty percent of your blood loss or your red blood yeah, cell. Yeah, forty percent, probably forty percent of volume loss. Yeah, so very very concerning. And when you're talking about <clears throat> falling blood pressure and rising pulse, those are two classic symptoms associated with hypovolemic shock as you lose a lot of blood and postpartum hemorrhage. So <clears throat> just to put that straight and keep it clear, um, I mean I see where this path is going and obviously you do too so and, and the and the loss of consciousness is a sign of a severe uh, hemorrhage yeah and, and lack of blood flow and oxygenation to the brain right there's something serious very serious going on and, and so we must pause to talk about at this stage what should be happening why i say postpartum hemorrhage and maternal death is preventable certainly the hemorrhage may not be but the death is preventable is because there are well-defined steps that need to be taken clinically when there are signs of postpartum hemorrhage. And, and they start with attempts to restore tone to the uterus, which reduces bleeding. So what those things are non-operative and, and actually quite straightforward. They are number one, uterine massage. Now they may have been persuaded not to do massage of the uterus because they felt the tone was okay. Although that's a late note and I don't believe it for a minute. And that will impact, by the way, the nurse's credibility later on, which says, oh, I found it was normal tone. So I, I didn't document until the patient crashed. And the other thing that they need to do, the doctor needs to be summoned, the obstetrician in particular, and the mother be given drugs called uterotonics, which are to restore uh, tone to the uterus, like oxytocin or hemabate or 
or something like that, you need to give that to mom to restore tone. And in the event that doesn't stop the bleeding, and by the way, at the same time, you need to do a CBC to check her hemoglobin. You need to check her coagulation factors to make sure that she's not developing a coagulopathy, which wasn't done here until much, much later. Uh, you need to give her fluids to restore her volume loss. Here we're talking about about a 40% loss of, of total blood volume, which is very serious. What you need to do is is you then you need to provide uterine compressions, and there's balloons that can be inserted to compress the uterus and other things to arrest the bleeding. Because if I fast forward in this case, we're going to find us uh, later in the OR doing a laparotomy and an urgent hysterectomy. And of course, when they open her abdomen and they open up her uterus, they find all kinds of blood in there and severe uterine anatomy. But they bring her into the OR without having first taken these preliminary measures to at least arrest the bleeding so that when they get her to the OR, she's not so critically unstable. Uterine compressions and that kind of thing, and uterotonics, all these things to reduce the blood loss. And so what you're going to do is you're going to perpetuate this bleeding, and as the longer she bleeds and the more severe the bleeding, the more likely it is for her to develop a, a disorder of coagulation, a quite coagulopathy, something called disseminated intravascular coagulation, which is a DIC. And a DIC is a very dangerous thing that ultimately can lead to death. So all of these preliminary steps that needed to be taken, number one, after recognition of the possibility of hemorrhage, it had to be number one on the differential diagnosis in these clinical circumstances. And incidentally, doing a, a cross and screen because you may need blood products as well, uh, right, you need to do all those things so that you were in a position to respond in a timely way to what was happening happening with this mom. And most hospitals today have what they call massive transfusion protocols, which need to be invoked or activated in a situation like this. But you have to check the mom's blood and you have to be ready to go. So the blood bank has to be called and you have to have the right kind of blood and you have to have the right proportions of you know, red blood cells to fresh frozen plasma. And all these things have to be put in place as a matter of routine in order to intervene in a timely way and make sure that, that mom has a fighting chance to avoid a bad outcome. None of that done here. Not even the obstetrician called until uh, almost an hour after she found herself back in the obstetrical OR being monitored by the anesthetist, who did not give her uterotonics, who did not give any uterine massage. So finally, uh, an hour later, uh, somebody thinks of activating the massive transfusion protocol, but they don't do coagulation studies. At the time, by the way, they instituted the protocol, her hemoglobin was down to 45 now. So all the, they'd given her some blood products, but it wasn't, right? The tank was emptying out faster than they could fill the tank at that point. And so she's, you know, she's down a few gallons and, and uh, almost running on empty here. And they're not giving her enough blood products. And as I said, the way to treat this is aggressively. And it wasn't treated aggressively until the massive transfusion protocol was invoked or activated. So they activate it, but of course she remains critically unstable. And she, they, they keep her that way for another hour or so, trying to restore blood volume, but they're just falling behind. They just can't get ahead of this now because of the delays. They just can't get ahead of her volume loss. And they decide to take her to the OR 
for a laparotomy and it turns out a hysterectomy. And of course they open up and they find all kinds of blood, about three liters or so of blood in the uterus and severe uterine acne as one would expect uh, because that's the major cause of postpartum hemorrhage. And she's very unstable from that point forward. They finally um, do a uh, uh, the, hist the hysterectomy. They take her to the, after, after the hysterectomy, they actually take her to the post-anesthesia care unit as opposed to the, the ICU. Uh, now at the ICU, she would have received far more intense monitoring than she did in the post-anesthesia care unit, but for some reason, they don't take her to the ICU. Post-hysterectomy, her blood pressure is still 86 over 52, even after this massive transfusion protocol. But her, but her platelets are still not horrible at 105. So they're low, but not horrible at 105, which tells us that she probably hasn't yet developed a DIC, but she's certainly in danger of developing a DIC. And there were other things that were, that were wrong about about this hospital's management of care, they had a massive transfusion protocol that covered many different areas, the, the ER, the OR, obstetrics, different areas of the hospital. But maternity patients have different needs than other kinds of patients because during pregnancy and in the most, in the immediate postpartum period, women have different coagulation factors than, than non-pregnant women. So their fibrinogen levels tend to go up, having to do with clotting, and you need to maintain they, their fibrinogen at a higher level. Well, the protocol applied to non-pregnant people and did not trigger certain resuscitation until fibrinogen dropped below one. Well, that's much too level low for a postpartum, much too low for a postpartum hemorrhage patient. Um, and then their ratio of products, blood products that they would give to this woman uh, were for other kinds of patients, but postpartum patients have different demands for the ratio of red blood cells to fresh frozen plasma. These are important things as well. So they didn't have a, a transfusion protocol that was geared towards this kind of patient. So eventually they decide they're gonna treat her with the next form of treatment after the hysterectomy doesn't seem to stop the bleeding. Now there's lots of bleeding still. There's bleeding from her vagina and you gotta wonder why after doing a hysterectomy why she's bleeding from her vagina. Now they're wondering about intra-abdominal bleeding. They just don't know what's happening here. And they decide they're going to do one of the treatments that, you, that can be done for postpartum hemorrhage, and that's a uterine artery embolization. Now, the problem is that's usually done before you take mom in for hysterectomy. So now it's sort of, it's, it's maybe a step after uh, when they shouldn't be doing it, sort of out of order. But here's what they do. They they take her to the angiography suite to do this embolization of the uterine artery and they send her on a stretcher. They take her out of the, the, the post-anesthesia care unit and she's waiting outside the angio suite for an hour to get her embolization done with, we don't think a doctor at her bedside, with getting some blood products, but not sufficient blood products. And without, you know, the level of monitoring that she needs of her vital signs while she's waiting to get this embolization. And not surprisingly, she goes in there and they start the embolization. And during the embolization, she has a cardiac arrest. It's just not surprising that she had a cardiac arrest in there. Of course, they try to resuscitate her. They have all kinds of challenges resuscitating her. 
and uh, it goes from really bad to worse after her embolization. They never are able to catch up on her blood. She suffers anoxic brain damage from a second cardiac arrest, and uh, uh, they keep her alive for about two days, but she dies two days later. Man, these stories are so terrible. Awful, and but preventable. This is this is the real real crime. Yeah, that's really sad here. Yeah. So, do you have more to say, or can I ask you a few questions? Fire away. One thing I want to go back to: um, a lot of nurses and doctors are always question about late documentation. And I'm very interested in the fact that you said you went, when the nurse talked about um, the firmness of the uterus, you, you said you don't believe it at all because it, because it was late. And I'm sure you took into consideration the clinical picture that you know was going on at the time, that it's unlikely that that uterus was well contracted. What, um, what comments do you have? And, and then you also said it's gonna hit the credibility of the nurse. What comments do you have on the late documentation in this case and how it affects the credibility of the nurse, um, starting with you as a lawyer who's, who's representing the client and going all the way to the courts, to the judge? Yeah, in circumstances like this, I think that it severely undermines the credibility of the nurse. And let's talk about why that is so. I'm not saying late documentation is always unacceptable. It is sometimes acceptable. You may be busy with other things. And then if you are, you ought, to, you ought to record these things as soon as you reasonably can. In a critical situation, you ought to call for help so that you can do both your nursing and uh, the recording of data. The problem, one of the problems with uh, the late recording of data here is first of all, the missing data. So we only have some of the vital signs. Even the late note doesn't tell us enough. It tells us the blood pressure, important for sure, Tells us sometimes the heart rate, important, absolutely, but tells us none of the other important vital signs, clinical information. So you must ask yourself, what was the communication like in the critical time in the, in the post-anesthesia care unit after the C-section? What was the communication like between the nurse and the physicians? Physicians don't have a contemporaneous note either. We have no times. We don't know what things are, what's happening. We are left to infer from what happened later, even though you're not supposed to look re look retrospectively, but we're left to infer what happened by virtue of the absence of, of this data. So the anesthetist comes in and what information does he have about the patient that allows him to make good clinical management decisions? Well, he has limited information from what's recorded, we know that. And we don't even know what he was told. Was he told about the seizure-like activity that had happened on three, one, on, on one occasion, loss of consciousness, two episodes of seizure-like activity in the context of, of hypotension? And did he ask about, well, what's her respiratory rate? What's her pain? What's her, what's her, oxygen saturation, what other things are going on? Was there a conversation about that? And did the doctor know that these things weren't being recorded or observed by the nurse? What's her bleeding is the key question that I can't get over. 
What's her What's her blood loss? What's her blood loss? Was there Was there enough to to prompt somebody to do a CBC? It's really what should have been done. A point of care hematocrit. Why weren't these things done? So what? Maybe the doctor isn't told enough about the acuity of this clinical situation. Uh, did the, Did he know about her that she was in for an abruption? Did they, Did he know that her pre-op hemoglobin was a tad low? Um, you know, all, did he know that she that immediately post surgery, post C-section, she was severely hypotensive? Did he know that there was a twenty-five minute gap in in getting any data? And the next time they record the data, she's again severely hypotensive with a seizure-like episode. I think that that it all goes to this communication. It's absolutely essential communication between the nurse and the physician because. The nurse is the eyes and ears of the doctor during these episodes. And unless there's evidence that the nurse communicated all the essential clinical data that allowed the doctor to make good management decisions, the nurse is going to bear the brunt of that. Yeah. This is interesting, too, because just as I listened to your talk, as I identified earlier, it's often not one of these issues, but two or three or four of these issues in the same case. So we've clearly got a lack of assessment, which led to a lack of intervention and a lack of communication, which really leads to a whole breakdown in the, well, the whole plan of care, medical and nursing plan of care. Why Do you have a sense why the obstetrician wasn't contacted? Because, I mean, there's two things that are just kind of rattling around in my head. The first is that oxytocin or syntocin, these uterine tonic drugs, are just pretty routine. The second that baby's delivered, there's a dose of oxytocin given and then an IV with 20 to 40 units of oxytocin hung and infusing in every post-op situation I have ever, ever been in, I think. So there's that missing piece. But also, you know, when there's any element of vaginal bleeding, uh, well, unstable vital signs in a fresh post-op C-section patient, as you clearly identified, most likely cause is bleeding, is hemorrhaging. And that isn't the, um, you know, the wheelhouse of the anesthetist. It's the wheelhouse of the obstetrician. So I, I'm having a hard time understanding those two things. The routine oxytocin or syntocinone wasn't given. And why, why wasn't the OB called here? Do you get any sense of that? Any idea? Yeah, I don't have a sense of it, Chris, but I'll tell you this, that any protocol, any guideline that deals with a response to a suspected postpartum hemorrhage requires that multiple disciplines be alerted to the problem. The first one is obstetrics. You must get the obstetrician back because we've got to deal with the cone. We've got to, we've got to give more uterotonic. There was certainly oxytocin given intraoperatively to this patient during the C-section, but she needed it after. She needed more uterotonics. So the, the team, this is a team, response and the team has to know that that where there is clinical evidence of hemorrhage and it is the only thing that could have happened here to explain this scenario where there is you must activate all of the care providers that are required to diagnose quickly and respond aggressively and that has to be anesthesia it has to be obstetrics, it may be hematology, it will be an extra nurse, it's the blood bank, 
All of these resources have to be mobilized, we know, to prevent death from postpartum hemorrhage. And when they are, death is prevented. Yeah. I've been in this scenario multiple times in this scene with a massive transfusion protocol going on. And it's scary as hell, I have to tell you. And I remember one case where the blood was so diluted that as the vaginal bleeding was occurring, it was just like pink water. It wasn't even blood anymore. It was just like, so, you know, she was so, um, she was so out of red blood cells and clotting factor that it was, it was terrifying. But I mean, you get, you know, this didn't happen. Nobody died. We, we worked, there were seven of us working nonstop on her for the longest time and then shipped her off to the ICU as soon as she was stable enough to even transfer. So I know how this story goes. So the missing pieces of this are, are terrifying to me. You know, it's, it's, um, it's unbelievable. But I was super interested the first time we talked about this case, how you brought up the story, how you brought up the kind of concept that in situations like healthy mothers having babies, where things almost always go right, um, that sometimes when they go wrong, everybody's in kind of a state of denial or refusal or just to, I can't, don't see it, don't get it. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that concept? Because I found that I found that very fascinating. I've seen it in, in many of cases. I call it health provider complacency is, is what I call it. And it's easy to be complacent, especially in a young, healthy woman who comes in post-C-section, who has a normal amount of blood loss during C-section. If you admitted every mother to the post-anesthesia care unit following the C-section, and you didn't monitor any of her vital signs and didn't do a thing for that mother, for every patient that came in, went, on, went and had a coffee and then sent her home a day later, chances are you'd be okay, right? Playing the odds. Why? Because these mothers are healthy and they come into the PACU, they come in healthy. They don't have risk factors. Uh, so there's no underlying condition that might cause them to hemorrhage, except here an abruption, which usually does not result in hemorrhage if you respond quickly as they did. So you're not expecting this mother to fail to follow the normal course of recovery. But what I would say to care providers is that where there is any deviation, even a minor deviation, from the expected course of recovery in a patient who's not expected <laughs> to, to have those complications. It's that much more important to respond quickly by increasing your level of surveillance and by acting quickly and aggressively to respond to it because it's those mothers that are gonna get into difficulty. I use the analogy of, of ER doctors, emergency room doctors, where what's the co most common complaint that an ER doctor sees back pain or, or abdominal pain probably. Those are probably the two most important. And if you took, say, an individual emergency room doctor and every case that she got in one year of abdominal pain and she failed to see any of those patients, sent them home with an order to follow up with her family physician two days later, my guess she's not going to miss anything because those are the odds, right? People come in, they use the emergency room as their family doctor, they, they overdid it, whatever happened. Most people don't have a serious pathological condition when they get into the ER. And doctors, ER doctors see this so much that they may be complacent and say, well, 
I'm going to dismiss it. You know, there's a, there's a lot of people walking into this emergency room that complain about nothing. They're wasting my time. I haven't seen a serious case in months. You know, this is not a big car accident victim who's bleeding out, right? I'm going to send them home with orders to follow up with their family doctor in two days. And they'll be caught by the family doctor and you don't have to worry about it. So I think that, that healthcare providers have to avoid the complacency that might occur in these situations. It's understandable because you don't see a lot of a lot of uh, complications, but it, it, it's it's critical not to miss it. You also use the word um, vigilance, the importance of vigilance, and I've often described that as as um, two parts: it being curious, you know, because sometimes in so many cases I've reviewed. There's somebody who kind of gets what's going on. They do a little further investigation, a little further assessment, have a bit more communication. There's a curiosity there, like what might be happening there? And then I, I've often called it diligence. It's a boring as hell word, diligence, but the diligence to follow up and investigate and intervene, communicate to whoever needs to know about what's going on is a boring task. It isn't It isn't the bleeding trauma patient or the stat C-section or anything like that, it's boring. But it's, it's so critical in so many of these cases. So you mentioned risk factors earlier. In this particular case, um, how, did you identify pre-existing or acquired risk factors that you feel the nurses and our doctors could have twigged onto and just from the get-go put a bit of hypervigilance on this patient's care? Well, let me talk about the first part of what you just talk, spoke about, and then I'll get into risk factors. I think in your introductory remarks, you talked about guidelines, but then you also talked about the need to adapt those guidelines to the needs of an individual patient. And I think that's one of the critical things here. Guidelines are just that. They're guidelines. And healthcare providers need to bring critical thinking to the care that they're providing to their patients. So if the surveillance is every 15 minutes, but you find an abnormality, uh, you're going, you need to increase your surveillance. I like to talk about common sense, but unfortunately common sense isn't that common in this world, I, I find. But it really is common sense that look, if I find something that is out of keeping with what I expect, then maybe I'm gonna pay a bit closer attention to what I'm doing, especially in the healthcare field where there are serious consequences for the failure to do so. I think we have to be careful about guidelines. Guidelines, uh, you talk about best practices. I, I think guidelines are, are sometimes only um, the minimal level of practice, but it's not the maximum. I don't, I don't think there is a doctor's order or a hospital policy or guideline that can cover every situation, period. Impossible. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. So, and I think a lot of nurses in particular don't always understand that. They think if I follow doctor's orders, and I've seen a few cases like that, that they, and sometimes doctor's orders make no sense. They're even ridiculous or they're wrong or they're even dangerous. And nurses will choose to follow the doctor's orders, feeling that that is their professional responsibility when, you know, you and I would both be on the same page that it's not. Safe, competent care is the responsibility and safe, competent care to that particular patient based on their particular needs and condition is the ultimate responsibility with a goal of avoiding injury. So that's where we are. But I, I love the comment that you said that because I think vigilance is really here. And do you feel like that sense of healthcare complacency played a role here in this case? Oh, absolutely, I have no doubt about it. I mean, just the failure to keep the records alone 
if if the look at it this way if the nurse felt that her findings were critically important you would have seen a lot more action in getting the doctor to the bedside if she recognized the possibility of the hemorrhage and the lack of notes suggests a failure to appreciate what was going on clinically and if she wasn't that busy panicking in response to a, uh, a concern about hemorrhage, then why wasn't she making contemporaneous notes? And why do them after the hysterectomy and after the patient has crashed? It makes no sense. Why aren't you calling for help? You had asked me about risk factors, and I promised to come back to risk factors in this case. So the only risk factors in this case uh, was the fact that, that mom presented with an abruption and that her hemoglobin was a tad low, probably both connected. Uh, to each other, which are not huge risk factors. And of course, the blood loss during the C-section was nothing that was abnormal. So there was nothing to hint uh, at during the C-section that this mother might be vulnerable to hemorrhage. No, no risk factors. So I think it comes down to this complacency, the absence of risk factors, the complacency, the failure to really put two and two together to have an understanding about what was happening clinically and then to respond appropriately. Mm, right. Yeah, actually 500 cc's during a C-section is considered about half of what you could or would normally lose. So that's a very small amount. At the end of the story, did anybody identify a reason for the lack of uterine tone or the postpartum hemorrhage? Was there anything identified or was it just... Because we all know that this can happen, right? It doesn't, luckily it doesn't happen often, but when it does happen, it's sometimes a great big messy deal. Yeah, so there was no reason identified for it. And of course she deteriorated rapidly after her hysterectomy and certainly after the embolization. And, uh, and that was it. Hmm. So listen, when the time comes, how are you going to question these nurses about their lack of assessment? For instance, in the PACU, when they only checked the BP and then later only the BP and the pulse, and they were abnormal, and but there's no respirations, bleeding consciousness, color, all those other kind of things. How? Tell me what that looks like. I, I mean, I've been questioned by you before just in preparation to go to trial, and uh, I know that you're a tough question, and we've joked about this before that I say it was the seventh circle of hell for me. And you one time joked that if you ever got me on the stand, you'd make the seventh circle of hell look like Disneyland. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the situation where this is the nurse on the stand. That's not your witness at a, in a trial. This is a nurse that you're cross-examining uh, because she's a defendant in the case. How how are you going to question these nurses about this lack of assessment communication? And I mean, this is a case where there, you know, one thing was done, but not enough was done. And then there's no there's no none of the logical intervention to the findings. So where are you going to go with that? Well, in a case like this, I'd start with the rules about nursing care in a postoperative patient. What are the rules? We'd look at the protocols. Tell me what the protocol requires you to do in a, for, for a post C-section patient. And I take each element of it. Does it require you to observe and record in a record to contemporaneously the patient's heart rate every 15 minutes in the first hour? Yes. Does it require you to do the same thing with BP, respiratory rate, oxygen saturation, so on and so forth? Does it require you to do that? And it's contemporaneous notes. And then I talk about I would talk about uh, communication and record keeping. 
and I would talk about her responsibilities. And I would talk about why this information is important. Do you know why you have to do this every 15 minutes? Do you know what the risks are? And what risks does this patient face? Well, the only, the main one is hemorrhage. There's really little else in terms of risk for this patient, right? So I would go through all of that stuff and then I'd take her to what she did. And I would contrast what her nursing duty was to what she did. And then I would take what we know, do you, you know, uh, a blood pressure, the initial blood pressure uh, when the patient got to the 67 over, over 37, do you understand that that represents a severe hypotension? What do you consider the risks to the patient of exhibiting an immediate post-operative blood pressure that was severely hypotensive? What did you as a nurse understand might explain what was happening? If you knew the seriousness of this, help me to understand why the obstetrician wasn't summoned immediately. And then why was there a 25-minute gap in recording the blood pressure? And I would take that step by step by step. And there's no out. I mean, this is there's no out for this nurse. This is clearly substandard care. I mean, when this patient had, had a seizure-like episode that you describe at 8 o'clock, Am I, do I understand your note correctly to say that you gave the mother fluids but did not call for the physician? And was that what you were trained to do? A seizure-like episode, did you know that a disturbed level of consciousness in a post-op patient like this represents a moderate to severe amount of hemorrhage, constituting 40% of blood loss? Did you know that? Well, if you did or you didn't, it doesn't matter. Why just call the doctor? What would have been done? So all, and, and, the, and then why are you making your note three hours later? Well, I was busy, it was an emergency and so on and so forth. Did you call for nursing assistance? When the doctor visited at 810, did you communicate that the mother was hypo, severely hypotensive? Yes, why didn't you write that down that you told the doctor? Did you tell the doctor that she had a seizure-like episode? Yes, why didn't you write that down? Isn't that a critical piece of information? that is required to be contained in your documentation. Of course it is. And that kind of thing, it'll go over and over again. And it, you could see how it builds, right? One thing builds on the other. And eventually I find that the nurse will have an explanation for the first 10 things, and then it'll break, her explanations will start to break down because there really is no good excuse for, for missing this. There just isn't, it, it, it isn't a complicated case. This is hemorrhage. Everybody knows this is hemorrhage. Everybody knows that it requires prompt recognition and everybody knows it requires aggressive treatment. None of that happened here, did it? Well, there you go. That's a little taste of what goes on. I got nervous just having you ask those questions even though I didn't have to answer them. But I, one thing I wanna say that I really appreciate that you said there is, um, I mean, sometimes it's, really young or new nurses or nurses in small centers or whatever, certainly during COVID that are getting pulled from other units to provide care. And um, I appreciate that you said that even when you don't know what's going on exactly, right, you don't understand the physiology behind what's happening. Um, I think a critical point that you made there is that you still have to understand that it's not normal and you need to get some help. You need to get hands on, eyes on that patient. In fact, maybe especially because you don't understand what's going on. Yeah, everybody, every nurse knows that a low blood pressure and a high pulse in a fresh post-op patient is a concerning thing that has chances to lead 
to death. Didn't, didn't uh, Clint Eastwood say in one of his movies, a man has got to know his limitations? I think you have to know your limitations. <laughs> I think what you have to do is if you don't know, you got to call for help. And I don't think if you're not, if you don't have experience and, or you're plunged into a situation that seems to be outside your skill set, you don't have to know what to do. All you have to know is that it's outside your skill set. That's all you have to know. And, that, and we see that often. Is, is this within my bailiwick or is it not? And if it's not, I better get help. And if that, and provided you as a nurse plunged into a situation where it isn't part of your skill set, provided you take the next step, which is to ask for help, you won't be responsible. The hospital may be responsible for putting you in a situation that you should not have been in. But if you recognize that is not within your skill set and you ask for help, what more can you do? I don't think you're liable in that situation. Oh, well, there you go. That's good to know. Asking for help, you know, and just getting and getting the right people in the room. And I think just getting the people in the room, like in this case, is I feel very strongly the obstetrician should have been called. It's not just somebody in the room. It's the people with the right skill set and authority to do the job that's got to be done. And in this situation, that would have been the obstetrician and another pair of hands from the nurses, because that's a very, very busy situation when you're in that that um, mass transfusion, that multiple transfusion protocol, you are just checking and hanging and documenting and taking down and restarting two IV pumps going quite often. I mean, you're just going like crazy. So that's a, that's really good advice. Do you, um, I think, I was gonna ask you about what you think about the documentation in the medical record, but I feel like you've probably said that fairly loud and clear, but do you have any further comments about that before I move on to something a little bit different? Well, even the physicians didn't document adequately. There are vague notes. There are no times. There's inconsistencies in what they're saying. It's a massive confusion, quite frankly. All of their notes were many hours after the events. And they didn't have any clear understanding of the chronology because nobody kept a contemporaneous note. So they made it up later on in very vague and, and difficult to understand terms. They even described the nature of the bleed in different ways. Some call it intrauterine and some call it intra-abdominal and some call it both. And it's very confusing. Yeah. What about the physician care in this case, the physician assessment? Do you have comments on that? Are there issues with physician assessment here? Yeah. So the anesthetist gets in early, uh, takes the mother to the OB OR, should have called for the, should have called for his obstetrical colleague right away. No delay. Hurry up. The obstetrical colleague should have been there, should have administered uterotonics, done uterine massage, done compressions, and tried to staunch the bleeding. That's what should have happened. There's no doubt that there is liability on both the nurses and the physicians here. Were there any um, extenuating surf uh, circumstances where the OB wasn't unavailable? Like, is this a small hospital or something, or the OB was in a different OR doing something else? Or does that matter to you? <laughs> It matters. I mean, resources matter, but but there has to be coverage in, in the event that these things happen. So if you do surgeries and, and one OB is in the OR, you've got to have a second OB on call and ready to respond. That wasn't a problem in this case. I actually have another maternal hemorrhage where exactly that happened, where the OB was called to, to look after some sort of urgent, uh, other urgent matter, left the bedside with a patient in extremis, and uh, didn't call for the backup OB. But here there was no issue. The, the OB was probably available, but wasn't called. Mm, man. Did you get a sense that anybody caring for this woman got what was going on at any time? 
uh, not until they brought her in for the laparotomy. And by then it was too late. So there, there was really, actually it's remarkable for, for my sense that nobody had an appreciation for the fact that there was a huge bleed going on until they got her in the, in the OR for the hysterectomy, opened her up and, and just saw tons and tons of blood and severe uterine atony. Mm. So for the lawyers listening in, what's your theory of this case? Uh, I think that the, the standard of care theory is pretty straightforward, um, the, that this should have been diagnosed sooner and should have been responded to sooner. I think, where is the defense going to go in this case? Um, difficult to know. They're going to probably say, well, she developed a DIC and DIC is difficult to control. They'll probably look at for some sort of a causation defense in a case like this, saying she would have developed some coagulopathy anyway and, and couldn't have been saved. Uh, we do have a little, you know, other issues, but actually I don't see much of a defense to the case, quite frankly. Mm. What if a defense, one of the, some of the defenses that come up, like say from the physician say, nobody told me that nobody, I didn't know that. Where do you go with that? Didn't know what? Any, well, they, uh, the, the OB apparently in this case didn't know much of anything except what went on during the C-section and probably that the patient was transferred in relatively stable condition to the post anesthetic care. But where do you go with that though? When does that, is that a, a valid defense that someone can say, no one told me I didn't know. And does that, is that a valid defense? No, it's not a valid defense. You're, you're, you're required to know, but there are two things at operate operating here. The first one is you as a doctor have to inform yourself of all of the clinical data relating to, your treatment of the patient, number one. And the second is that communication piece I spoke about earlier where the nurse, has, the nurse has to tell the doctor about all the clinically important factors that will affect the doctor's management of care. Those are the two critical things. A, a full history, a full understanding of the clinical events from the doctor's own review of the chart and from the communication with the nurse. Because remember, the nurse is the eyes and ears of the doctor and if she, and the fact that she didn't report it anywhere in the chart would make it very difficult to prove that proper communication occurred. Yeah, sure. What if a nurse says to you, the hospital policy says I had to check the blood pressure four times after she came into the PACU and I did that. And so, you know, I met the standard. Where are you going to go with that? Well, even if she did, if said that's the standard, and I, you know, I don't accept that that's the standard, but even if she says that's what, that's what it says, she stuck to the standard, the fact is that there was an abnormal finding. The abnormal finding, the standard also requires that it be reported to the doctor, and the doctor would not, be, would not say that he or she is limited to the hospital protocol. The doctor has to respond to the overall clinical picture and do something. And all of the literature and all of the guidelines of postpartum hemorrhage are very clear, as you said, you know, you get all these people involved and everybody has a role to play and you respond aggressively and there's lots of action. We didn't get action here until an hour and a half after the problem came up. That's the, that's the problem. That's the issue. And this is one of those issues. I mean, sometimes an hour and a half doesn't matter too much, but in the case of postpartum hemorrhage, an hour and a half matters a lot. And that's, that's probably where the, why this case ended up where it did with maternal death. How about the defense of the doctor's orders didn't say that if a nurse argues that with you or that's a defense that he or she has that wasn't in the doctor's orders? Where are you going to go with that? 
Yeah, it's an independent nursing duty. You know from your nursing training what you're supposed to do, whether the doctor says it or the doctor doesn't say it. There's two aspects to that, right? One is if the doctor tells you to do something that's dangerous, don't do it. You have an independent duty to the patient. Escalate up the chain of command in the event that that happens. And the second thing is the absence of a doctor's order doesn't mean that you don't know what to do through your training and experience. You know what to do as a nurse. And if you have a question, again, ask. That's that's a really good point. But that's a case that comes up a lot, that lack of independent thinking. Nurses don't, I don't, I think they just think if they're following the guidelines and following the rules and following doctor's orders, they're doing their job. But I was doing some reading on this subject yesterday, and it's very clear that nurses have the authority and the responsibility to expand those guidelines and policy and procedure as they need to based on the patient condition. So, but I don't know that everybody understands that or feels, um, you know, it takes some critical thinking, some courage, some bravery, some experience, um, some balls, for lack of a better word, to do those kind of things and stand up and do your own thing, despite what everybody else is doing or policy or guidelines state. Well, I have a recent case that I just did uh, in another province here where uh, the nurse is turning up oxytocin during labor with a profoundly abnormal heart rate and hours and hours of tachycystole, excessive uterine contractions, hours and hours, the doctor comes in and says, turn it up more. And the nurse asks, why did you turn it up again in view of the tachycystole and the obviously abnormal fetal response? She says, because the doctor told me to. But did you understand that you had an independent duty as a nurse not to follow that order? No, I must follow doctor's orders. Did you know that by doing that, you were putting this baby at risk of neurologic injury and possible death? Yes, I did, but I had to follow doctor's orders. That's a training problem with the hospital. If nurse says that, the hospital has botched that nurse's training. That that issue comes up so many times. In fact, I gave a presentation to a whole group of perinatal nurses across the country a few years ago on this particular issue because the, the issue of oxytocin administration, the guidelines written for the nurses are quite clear, and the guidelines written for the doctor are by the physician are softer. <laughs> They're not nearly as clear. And so, and it takes a courageous nurse, a courageous, experienced, strong nurse to look a doctor in the eye and say, I'm not going to turn that oxytocin up. And some nurses respond to that with like, well, I'll, I'll just make the doctor do it. But, you know, my comment to that has always been, you are not protecting that patient or that baby by making or allowing someone else to do it. If it shouldn't be done, it shouldn't be done. So we've all got to find ways to have that conversation. But that's a whole nother topic. We won't go down that today, but I'm I'm interested that you brought that up because it's a common issue. And I think a lot of nurses defend it like that. The doctor's order said this, so I did it. And I've had several cases like that where I'm like, and sometimes the orders are terrible. They're unsafe. You know, doctors make mistakes and we all make mistakes. And I've had conversations with many doctors in my lifetime, you know, where one of us has caught the other one just about to do something that should not be done. And we both said, oh, thank you. Thank God you were here and you said something and you just didn't let that happen. So, I mean, there's an element of that too, for sure. So in my experience, a lack of assessment or the assessment that don't get performed is often accompanied by a seeming lack of competency. And sometimes it's just a young nurse or it's a new nurse on a different unit Sometimes there's an element of complacency. I think like you met up an older career or mid-career nurse who just failed to develop new skills and keep up on their learning and education. 
Were there elements of that in this case? Um, thoughts on how a lack of competency and or lack of critical thinking connects to a lack of assessment in this in general, and then in this case in particular? Yeah, I think that a lack of critical thinking and competency are probably two different things. Competence certainly is a common feature that I see in many of my cases. I see some shockingly incompetent, not just nurses, but doctors that care that care that you just you shake your head and you wonder what the heck happened and how could that possibly have happened? I, as a non-medical person with, I guess, a little bit of knowledge, a dangerous little bit of knowledge, but a little bit of knowledge would have known, and I'm, I'm not a, a doctor or a nurse. So uh, competency is a hospital problem, and I think it's it's systemic. I think that hospitals, generally speaking, are not doing a great job in evaluating competency, and not just competence in, in critical thinking, but competency in communication. I think communication is one of the biggest failures in a hospital setting. What do you tell the doctor? Uh, the nurse decides what that is. Have you given the doctor the complete story that allows the doctor to make the right decision? Doctors are running around like crazy and, and they're not seeing the patient. And of course, you know, I guess resources are a problem too. COVID resources have been a problem. It's a continued problem, right? A shortage of nurses and, and certainly that's a problem. So assessing competency, maintaining competency, I think that's a problem. Uh, even some of what they're teaching nurses, I think, is wrong. That's the subject for another podcast. We can talk about guidelines, about what they teach nurses about fetal surveillance. And you know, that's a pet peeve of mine uh, during, during labor and delivery. I, I just think that, I think that um, the focus is wrong. I think the focus in some cases is just wrong. It, it's always got to be on patient safety and not on avoiding liability. Uh, they've, they've got to follow up competency, uh, but competency is a common feature in, in many of our cases. As for critical thinking, this case certainly involved a lack of critical thinking in, in putting together the clinical picture, but that critical thinking didn't require a genius. Yeah, just required some curiosity and assessment and a little bit digging into what was going on, right? Just required a bit. Yeah, just a bit. So many malpractice lawsuits have multiple overlapping issues, as we talked about. And of the five that we mentioned today, at the beginning of the podcast, we talked about communication, assessment, med errors, equipment errors, and infection control. What other issues did you identify in this case? Well, I think it's an assessment of communication case. It's also a systems case because of the what I say is a deficient massive transfusion protocol. So I think there's a systems error. I don't think that the massive transfusion protocol of the hospital uh, conformed with uh, the, uh, the obstetrical understanding of how to respond to postpartum hemorrhage. I think it was deficient. And that's a problem for the doctor and it's a problem for the nurses. If hospitals establish lousy protocols and they follow these lousy protocols, the hospital will be liable for those sorts of things, although physicians are expected to know. I have a case involving... Uh, uh, a connectorous case, a hyperbilirubinemia, a jaundice case, where the threshold, the hospital protocol threshold for treating uh, elevated bilirubin uh, shouldn't have applied to this particular baby because of the clinical circumstances. There's plenty of literature out there about how to treat high bilirubin in this baby, but there wasn't within the hospital. And the hospital protocol was based on old, protocol based on old data. Uh, that shouldn't happen. 
right? That, that shouldn't happen. So hospitals have system errors that are occurring here. They're not keeping up with developments in, in the medicine. And the physicians, I think, are expected to do so independently of the hospital. But certainly the hospital needs to keep up with these things. It's interesting because Connectress and possibly postpartum hemorrhage, but I'm going to have to look that up, is on the never, the, the never, never list in Canada in particular, the 12 things that should never, ever, ever happen, particularly in hospital. Absolutely. No baby should ever suffer a brain injury from hyperbilirubinemia resulting in Connectress. It should never happen. But it does happen. But it, it does, does happen. happen. But, but the yeah. treatment is so simple. You give these babies phototherapy and most of them do very well and they don't suffer brain injury. It is, it is like postpartum hemorrhage, as you say, connectoris is an avoidable injury. Yeah, which makes it all that much more tragic when it happens, isn't it? So last question, and a great big question for you, Richard. How do we fix, for lack of a better word, these problems you've identified? Or you mentioned you're not happy about the nursing school curriculum, so here's your moment to talk. How do we educate healthcare professionals in a way that errors around assessment stop happening. We all know that they do happen and we often know why they happen, but how do we make them stop happening? Well, we don't have a central repository for data on these things. Hospitals track their own data. And I, I guess I suppose there are organizations that track data as well. And we don't really have a measure of the extent of the problem. Um, Whenever I speak to nursing and physician groups, uh, even though I only act for the plaintiff and I make a healthy living off their errors, I try to help them with avoiding those errors. I know you do. Yeah, I, I like to say that more importantly than making a living off their errors, I am a consumer of healthcare and I would like it to be better. I would like there to be fewer errors. And if I had zero cases, I'd be a very happy guy. Uh, so, you know, I've often talked about ways that you can avoid seeing me on the other side of the table in, in some of these cases. And I wish that hospitals would take these errors and maybe, uh, you know, get people to, to use them as a learning experience. One of the things that I really don't like about the medical profession's approach to errors is their, their fear of this shame and blame culture that they talk about. Well, we don't want to, we want to avoid, a culture of shame and blame, that's a bad idea to, to buy. You shouldn't avoid a culture of shame and blame. You should be, it's about accountability to your patients. There needs to be accountability. And where error is made, you need to face up to the error, acknowledge that the error is made and talk about the corrections you're going to make. And the burden of loss should not be on the patient upon whom you committed the error, but upon, upon you. That's just the nature of what I think is a good functioning tort system. So, this fear of shame and blame, I think, results in, in the profession suppressing responses to errors. I think they still get hidden. In this day and age where you're supposed to be upfront and disclose to patients what's happened to them, I think the opposite is happening. I don't think there's disclosure. When a young uh, parent comes in, two young parents come in to see me about what happened to their baby, because their baby has cerebral palsy now when they come in to see me, what's the first question you think they ask me when they come in through the door? What happened to my baby? They don't know. They don't know what happened to their baby. What happened to my baby and why? Shouldn't they know by the time they see me? They don't. They don't. 
what happened to my baby? And so my first task is to explain what happened to their baby, an explanation that they never got from their medical providers. So I don't think that healthcare as a whole is really facing these, these challenges head on. I think that there are ways to lower morbidity and mortality in healthcare beyond what's been done so far. And as I said, there are guidelines I think that don't help to, to lower. I think they do the opposite. They help to, to avoid liability. We ought not to be devising guidelines aimed at avoiding liability. We'd have to devise guidelines that enhance care and that reduce morbidity and mortality without regard to litigation. Mm. That's good advice. I think too, it's a slow moving boat, you know, like I, I was involved in cases that were investigated uh, just because they were near misses or outcomes or it was identified by someone as a potential, potential problem. And the process of getting it through the research, the committees, the studies and getting a new policy or procedure or guideline on it, it took years, you know, during which time a thousand more of those things could have happened, you know, so that's, that's a a difficult thing always in healthcare. You can't just change something and start making up your own standard of care, even though it's better. You just do the best that you can. But um, that's another downfall, I think, in the the lack of information, the lack of reporting, and then the speed at which things change or don't. All too slow. All too slow. All too slow. Well, listen, is there anything else you'd like to say to us before I do just a quick little wrap up? Well, I think we've covered it. Yeah. Well, you did a great job. Thank you so much, Richard. Thanks for having me back, Chris. Yeah. I hope that something I said or you said today sinks into somebody just with a greater understanding of the nursing and medical responsibility for assessment and changes the way they practice in a way that promotes patient safety. I mean, that's what this is all about. But I want to say not only thanks to Richard, but thanks to all of you who are listening today. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and leave us a review. And don't forget that in many jurisdictions in the U.S. and in Canada, nurses, doctors, and lawyers can claim continuing ed credit for listening. This podcast is available on our website, connectmlx.com, and all the usual platforms. And for nurses listening in the U.S., you can listen and receive credit through CE Broker. Be sure to tune in over the next few months as we break down the other fascinating issues of communication, medication errors, equipment errors, and infection control. So thank you so much for being here again. Goodbye and take good care.